Hello? Good. The reason I turn it off is that the beautiful music that I've been listening to tonight didn't really need to have my amplified voice coming through it. You're singing, the singer's up the front, and as for the musos up the back, you know, I, I stayed around this morning and just to listen to you, and you were just jamming. You were just playing music, and you were all just bouncing off each other. It was fantastic. I went and told Lachlan that uh, while I was uh, housebound recovering from my injuries five years ago, I realized I needed some lung exercises, so I bought a very expensive uh, clarinet on the internet, $100, and uh, <laughs> I taught myself to play. I just got a hymn book, actually, and worked my way through it. I had a wonderful time. The cat left home. Um, <laughs> the dog dug its way out under the back fence. And uh, I will never be able to play the way you guys played. It was just, just so beautiful. And thank you for coming. I didn't know whether to set up a, uh, a stall at Tuggera and try and preach there, but you've all come. And, um, <laughs> I'm very flattered. Two years ago, a most unusual world record was set by a gentleman called Craig Harrison. Can you spot him? You can't see him? Well, you might be able to see him in the next slide. He's a sniper. And uh, you could walk on him before you saw him. And uh, he set a world record that is not likely to be beaten for a long, long time. Uh, he was in Afghanistan and he saw his comrades being ambushed and uh, with high-powered binoculars he saw at a great distance uh, two soldiers in a machine gun, um, Taliban fighters. And the world record for a long shot uh, is just under two kilometers, which is an incredible distance any of you who have ever fired a rifle. But when he measured it, he realized that they were at an impossible 2.47 kilometers, huge distance. But when he saw that his comrades were under threat and could die, he took very careful aim. He aimed 200 centimeters high. He aimed about 40 centimeters to the left to allow for windage. And he carefully squeezed off a trigger. And to his astonishment, the soldier just dropped dead like that. And uh, there was one other left who grabbed the machine gun. And so he took a sight on him. It took four seconds for the bullet to fly that distance. And when he saw the first person drop, the sound took a long time, many seconds to reach. And by the time it got there, the second soldier was dead. And to prove that it was no fluke, he fired one more shot and disabled the machine gun. And uh, he, they reckon he is the sharpest sniper of all time but 
Somebody else took a longer shot. A bit further back in time, it involved multiple shots at a lion, of all things. And the lion was wounded and finally killed. And it was the longest shot of all time. I need to tell you a story. Many years ago, when names were given to babies that signified something about them, a little boy was born. He must have had a terrible brother because you'd sue your parents for this name, but they called him the fool's brother. And as this little boy grew up, even at the age of six or seven, I guess, they started to realize he was anything but a fool and that he had wisdom way beyond his years and he had a best friend. Well, I loved his name. His name was Everybody Loves Me. And uh, the fool's brother and Everybody Loves Me were best friends. And as so often happens in fairy tales, except this one is true, Everybody Loves Me became king. And the day he became king, he called his best friend, the fool's brother, and he said, I want you and I need you. And I want you to be side by throne and I will not make any significant decision of state unless you are there with me. It was a very happy little kingdom. And uh, he became the king's closest advisor and counselor. Well, the fool's brother eventually, and there's only records that he had one child, and I think there was a bit of uh, infertility going through that family DNA. He was so glad when he got a little boy that he gave him a name called the father of a nation. He had great hopes for his son, and he grew up, but he only had one ambition, and that was to be in the king's elite crack troops and the very top was a small group called the 30 who were so brave that their names were legend throughout the country and there was three of them who were extra brave and they were simply called the three one of them whose name was Adino I'll show you how brave he was in a single battle with his sword killed 800 men now you take this group here and double it several times and you're all waving swords and you're all fighting each other. He killed 800. He became number one. Number two, his name was Eliezer. He, uh, he got into a fight in a barley field and at the end of the day, after he had killed 300 soldiers, they had to actually pry his fingers off the handle of the sword uh, they were just completely cramped on. Number two. And the last one, Benaiah, number three, um, he was walking down the road one day and he met an enemy soldier, an Egyptian, who was uh, seven foot six tall, which is what's about 800 centimeters or whatever it is. He was very tall. And uh, if I met somebody like that, I would win the fight by 400 meters. I'll tell you this. But he went and grabbed his spear off him and rammed it through him and killed him and he was number three. 
And the father of a nation, he actually became number 23 in the 30, a very brave man. And he finally had a child, a little girl. He must have been so grateful. He called her the promise fulfilled. And as she grew, as in fairy stories and in this true story, she was a most attractive and beautiful little girl. And she grew up. And she married one of the 30, whose name was God in light. God is light, number 27. It was such a happy kingdom. And the king, he was smart. He said, to my 30... I will let you have some land free of charge right next to my palace and you can build your house right up against the walls. And they did. You see, it was smart. It was a form of neighborhood watch. They were so close and they were so happy. The king discovered one afternoon that if he got up on tippy toes and looked over the top of his palace, he could see right into the houses of the 30. And he looked a bit harder, he discovered in one house in particular, he could look right into the bathroom, and the promise fulfilled was having a bath. And he sent for her. And the real name of the promise fulfilled was, tell me, Bathsheba. Always thought it had something to do with bath, not promise fulfilled. But anyhow, she, she met the king and she must have been overawed because the king, who everybody loves me, whose name meant beloved, I took a liberty there, he, um, he had such charm and charisma. And I guess there's no other way of putting it uh, sweetly in a vegetarian sort of a way. They had sex. <laughs> and... Uh, Because Hubby was away, he was away across the River Jordan uh, where, the, where the city of Amman in the kingdom of Jordan now is. He was fighting. The king should have been there too. And after a few weeks, um, Bathsheba got in touch with him and said, uh, Your Majesty, you and I share a little secret. And that secret's getting bigger every day. They had a real problem because the king could have been stoned for it. It was pure, outright adultery. And he said, oh, well, um, I'll bring him home. God is light, Uriah, the Hittite, Turkish, bring him home. And uh, a bit of r and he'll uh, come home and he'll go in and uh, he'll sleep with you and he'll go back and then a few weeks later you'll make this marvelous announcement that you're pregnant. I tell you what, guys, it's not the first time in history an announcement like that was planned. But when he came home, David forgot that Uriah was a member of the 30, so well trained, and the rules of battle were when you came home and when your comrades were still fighting, you didn't go in and enjoy the pleasures of a family life. And you only got as far as the front doorstep, and he slept there. The next morning, David called for Bathsheba. What happened? What happened? In a general sort of a way. And, uh, <laughs> and Bathsheba said, nothing. 
in a specific sort of a way. And <laughs> King said, all right, plan B. I'll have him round for a party tonight and I'll get him off his face, drunk. And uh, I'll send him home and brace yourself. And he got home. He was so... Now, please forgive me. I, didn't, I really didn't intend that in a crude sort of a way. Uh, so forgive me for that. But he was so drunk, he still remembered his responsibility and he didn't get past the doorstep. And so the queen said, it's not working. And the queen, king said, I've got another plan. He gave him a letter to give to Joab, the, king, the general of the army. And it was to put Uriah at the front of the battle. And when the battle was hot, everybody should just fall back. And uh, that poor, faithful number 27 of the 30 trudged all the way across the Jordan, across the hot valley, up into Amman, carrying his own death warrant. And he gave it to Joab, and within a very short space of time, he was dead. You know, he nearly got away with it, but for Nathan the prophet. And they, the whole city, the whole country realized that the king had had adultery with Bathsheba. But let's remember, she was the only granddaughter of the king's best friend. Anyone tell me what the fool's brother's name was? You see, it's a fairly unknown story in the Bible. Ahithophel. And all Ahithophel's love and faithfulness and devotion turned to shock. And the shock went to disbelief. Disbelief went to horror. Horror went to rage. And after rage came revenge. And he sought an opportunity which soon came. David lost status. And the time came when his own son... Absalom rebelled against him. He was never anointed as king of Israel and deposed his own father. And the day that David fled the city barefoot, weeping and crying, Ahithophel, the fool's brother, went to David, went, went to uh, Sol, uh, Absalom, and he offered his services as chief counselor. And at that moment, he realized that he would win, or he thought he would win. I've actually got a couple of pictures here. One is what the three probably looked like in someone's imagination. And the painting someone has done of Ahithophel appearing before the new king, Absalom, and offering his services. And Absalom was cunning, he wanted to win the hearts of the people and he organized a huge meeting of all the men of Israel. It was a representative group, but there would have been thousands. And I really need your imagination because they're all there. And in the middle is Absalom. On one side is Ahithophel and on the other, David had got one of his trusted men to pretend to be disloyal, Hushai, 
and he had gone to Absalom. He had such high status in the country and he offered his services as a counsellor as well. And uh, Absalom was very flattered. And so here he is in front of all these men of Israel. And on one side you've got Ahithophel, on one side Hushai. And Solomon turns and he says to Ahithophel, what's your advice? He'd already given him one piece of advice. He said, you need to have sex with all your father's concubines. That was the practice in those days that a king's reign was over and that he had no more power. And he did it on the roof in a tent. And the shame that David must have felt as a result could hardly be calculated. But as he stood in front of all these men... And when he was asked to give his advice, he came forward and he said, well, I would take 12,000 of the king's crack troops. I think we know the valley where the king is hiding. And we'll go up there and it will be an ambush. We might lose 15 or 20 soldiers, but David will die. And that'll be the only loss. And when you come back, everybody will cry, God save the new king. And all the men of Israel murmured and nodded their heads and they said, the fool's brother has spoken. He had such a reputation. And they said, his words are wise. And then the king turned to Hushai and he said, what's your advice? And Hushai said, don't kid yourself. King David is like a she-bear that has lost her cubs. He will fight. But you can go up into that valley with as many troops as you like. And you won't find him. He'll be hidden somewhere far in the desert, in a cave. You won't find him. You'll come home and you'll look stupid. And all the men of Israel nodded their heads and they said, wise words. Well, Absalom had a bit of a problem. And he finally, in front of all these people, had to turn to Ahithophel and say, Ahithophel... You are such a wise man, but your advice is wrong, we believe. It would have worked, actually. And Ahithophel hung his head, and when he was dismissed, he went home, tidied up his affairs, took a rope, and hung himself. Ahithophel forgot something. He forgot that the cause of God is greater than those who represent it. And the people of Israel knew it because we are told that for hundreds of years after his death when people walked to Jerusalem and they passed the little village of Gilo and they would go up to the graveyard where Ahithophel was buried and as they walked up they would pick up a rock and they would stone his grave because they recognized even though he had every reason to be offended he had failed his king and lord What's going on here? Satan had fired a very long shot because way back in Genesis, we were told that there would be a line of succession that would be unbroken from the line of the tribe of Judah. And at that moment, if he could have killed David, who had been the promised king of Israel... And God had said, from that line will come the Messiah, 
he would have broken that lion by the shot. And, but he wounded the lion. David was never as strong again. We look at Ab uh, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, at old age, had been told that they would have a baby. It was impossible. Satan knew that the line of the Messiah was so thin at that stage. Years later, Joash, a little boy, eight years old, was the only surviving king-to-be of Israel. And his grandmother tried to kill him. His nurse had to hide him in the royal apartments, in the temple, sorry, for, for, for about six years until he was brought out and crowned. That was how close it was to the messianic line being severed. You see, as human beings, we are so absorbed with our own history, we forget that the whole universe was intently waiting and watching for the Messiah to be born. And Satan was firing these very, very long shots. The infant Jesus, when Herod the Great tried to kill him, just escaped from Bethlehem and every other baby boy in the little town was killed. Once again, Satan came so close to extinguishing the royal messianic line. His hatred of Christ, well, David actually wrote a psalm about Ahithophel. And I read here in Psalms 41, Even my close friend whom I trusted he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And many, many years later, when Christ was at his most agonizing point at the Last Supper, and his disciples didn't really understand his mission, he realized that uh, he was a parallel of Judas. You see, Judas was loved by the disciples. Ahithophel was loved by the people. In fact, they didn't even call him a man. They referred to him when he speaks. He is the one whom God is speaking through. They held him with such reverence. And yet Christ said during the Last Supper, when his heart was breaking, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You see, it was a messianic prophecy. Both Judas and Ahithophel are the only two people in Scripture whose suicide is recorded by hanging. It's incredible how the Old Testament stories all point towards the Messiah. And you know, the most aggressive text in the whole of Scripture is in the book of Revelation. You will never find a more aggressive text than this. It's in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. You will never find a more aggressive. A woman is never at a more vulnerable stage at the point of childbirth and there's a devil standing in front of her waiting to devour Christ. Uh, we just take our salvation for granted, you know. But Christ took an enormous risk 
in coming down to this earth. He could have failed. And we will never fully understand what it was that he went through. You know, we happen to be living in a world where God is forgotten in the equation. But he happens to love us. In fact, he's besotted with us. Besotted means, I mean, if you're besotted with a person, it means that you think about them all the time. And that's what God does about us. He's continually thinking about us. He knows when he's going to return. If we just could glimpse a little bit of how, much, how intense that love is, it would just transform our lives. The other thing is he's promised he's going to take us home coming back to get us, John chapter 14. Many years ago when my children were small, um, I was principal of Fulton College in Fiji and it came time for furlough. And I said to my wife, where would you like to go? Anywhere in the world to reward you? Because she'd, she'd put the kids to bed all those years when I was going to university four nights a week and, and Sue was a very unselfish person she said oh no nowhere so I kept on pushing I said where would you like to go and finally it came out she said I'd love to go to London and see Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey and these sorts of places and I said we'll go now let me give you some advice those of you who have children and those of you who have yet to have children here is the advice when you go traveling overseas if at all possible leave them behind um, my brother at great expense took all his kids and they went to Paris and they were in the Louvre of this great art gallery and uh, his oldest child Elizabeth he took her in front of this gorgeous painting and he said Elizabeth what do you feel when you see this painting and she said I want an ice cream um, they got to London and when they were in Westminster Abbey and they were looking at the coronation chair he said Elizabeth what do you think what do you feel when you see this piece of our history I want to go to the toilet so we left the kids behind and uh, with sufficient bribes that we'd be back in, in a month and uh, we'd bring them presents and uh, Greg fell for it and uh, Felicity fell for it but not Claire Claire's my oldest daughter she was so heartbroken at the thought that her parents were deserting her for a month and I still got a photo of, of them saying goodbye to us and she was biting her bottom lip and being as brave as possible off we went they still haven't forgiven us that our first port of call was Los Angeles and Sue and I went to Disneyland but um, <laughs> I have taken Claire to Disneyland since then and it's part paid for the uh, desertion. We went to Europe, to London and things and you know every single day we just wondered what they were doing. We'd talk about them and the closer it got to the time to come home, the less we were enjoying the sights of London and England and Europe and the more we were thinking about our children because we were, knew that we would see them soon. And the second last day, 
the, uh, the last day before we were to take off, we went to the, um, the British Museum in Kensington and there was this huge globe. It would be as tall as those lights there. And it was slowly rotating and it was the earth and the sun was, was an artificial light shining on it. I said the most stupid thing in my life. I, I looked at London and I went down to look at Fiji where the children were being looked after and I said, you know, dear, we couldn't be further from our children if we possibly tried. Oh, I want to go up! <laughs> and we got on the plane and we flew non-stop to Vancouver and the jolly plane that we got on, it didn't start. We sat in that plane for 12 hours while it was still at the terminal. We had three meals, watched two movies, and finally they put us on another jet. And we were desperate because our children were to meet us at Nandi, and they were to be put on a plane, and we were to be there 10 hours before they arrived. But we flew all the way across the Pacific, unable to contact them, wondering where they were, were they all right? Uh, because my son, who was about nine at the time, on his own in an airport was quite a menace. And finally we landed at Nandi, and we could see our children jumping up and down. They were so excited, so were we. And as we got out, we had to walk across the tarmac, and the children just burst through the... Uh, the barriers and there were people yelling at them in Fiji and they just ignored them and I remember Claire she she flew into my arms and poor old Claire she was crying and sobbing and she said I knew you'd come back I knew you'd come back <laughs> well did I ever have the guilts anyhow I said to her finally Claire how did you know we were going to come back and I have never ever forgotten her answer. She said, because you said you would. <laughs>